You're listening to WERALP, Arlington, Virginia, 96.7 FM. To understand this, you have to go back to what young brother here referred to as the house Negro and the field Negro back during slavery. There was two kinds of slaves. There was the house Negro and the field Negro. The house Negro, they lived in the house with master. They dressed pretty good. They ate good because they ate his food. What he left. (laughs) They lived in the attic or the basement, but still they lived near their master. And they loved their master more than the master loved himself. They would would give their life to save their master's house quicker than the master would. The house Negro, if the master said, we got a good house here, the house Negro said, yeah, we got a good house here. Whenever the master said we, he said we. That's how you can tell a house Negro. listening to WERALP 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. I am Andrea Cameron and this is Enlighten Me. Today on the program, I am so excited because we have a, first of all, we have a jam-packed Enlighten Me uh, for you guys. Uh, And we will be talking about civil rights history. So one of my favorite topics to talk about. But We also have a surprise guest for you guys today, Hans Charles, the cinematographer behind the documentary, Ava DuVernay's documentary, The 13th, will join us today to talk about the nomination as well as what he will be doing this weekend, as well as, uh, you know, what's been going on with black cinematographers as of late. Also on the program, Kevin Alexander Gray, he'll join me to talk about the history of the civil rights struggle within the African-American community, as well as his views on the administration's outreach uh, toward African-Americans, especially during Black History Month. So this should be a very, very interesting conversation uh, today. But first, we do have our uh, weekly Black History Month fact and figure. So I will start off by talking about our Black History Month. Anderson was a contra alto singer and the first African-American to sing in the New York Metropolitan Opera. Born in 1897 in Philadelphia, she joined her church's junior choir at age six and got to perform solos and duets, often with her Aunt Mary. Anderson credited her aunt's influence as the reason she pursued a singing career. Her aunt arranged for Marion to sing for local functions and she got into her as she got into her early teens she began began to make as much as five dollars for singing 
a considerable amount at the time. Anderson attended Stanton Grammar School, graduating in the summer of 1912. Her family couldn't afford to send her to high school nor pay for music lessons. Still, Anderson continued to perform whenever she could and learn from anyone who was willing to teach her. Throughout her teenage years, she remained active in the church adult choir. Eventually, the church pastor, along with the black community leaders, raised the money she needed to get singing lessons and to attend South Philadelphia High, from which she graduated in 1921. After Anderson applied to the Philadelphia Music Academy, but was turned away because she was black, undaunted, she pursued studies privately in her native city through the continued support of the black community. Anderson auditioned for, for with vocal teacher Giuseppe Bugatti singing Deep River, and he was immediately brought to tears. In 1925, Anderson got her first big break when she won the first prize in a singing competition sponsored by the New York Philharmonic. As the winner, she got to uh, perform in the concert with the orchestra in August of 1925, a performance that scored immediate success with both audience and music critics. Over the next several years, she made a number of concert appearances in the United States, but racial prejudice prevented her career from gaining much momentum. In 1928, she sang for the first time at Carnegie Hall. Eventually, she decided to go to Europe, where she spent a number of months studying and launching a highly successful European singing tour, singing in several countries. On Easter Sunday in 1939, Anderson performed and a critically acclaimed concert on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and was honored with the NAACP's Springham Medal the same year. In 1955, she became the first black person to perform at the Metropolitan Opera in New York City. She sang for both Dwight Eisenhower and John F. Kennedy's inauguration, respectively, in 1957 and 1961. Anderson was active in supporting the civil rights movement during the 1960s, giving benefit concerts for the Congress of Racial Equality, the NAACP, and the American Israel Cultural Foundation. In 1963, she sang at the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. That same year, she was one of the original 31 recipients of the newly reinstituted Presidential Medal of Freedom. In 1964, she began her farewell tour, beginning at Constitution Hall and ending at Carnegie Hall in April of 1965. Although retired from singing, she continued to appear publicly on special occasions. She later worked as a delegate to the United, Human, uh, Na United Nations Human Rights Committee and as a goodwill ambassadress for the United States Department of State. Anderson died in 1993 at age 96. To her legacy, she was awarded the Kennedy Center Honors in 1978, the National Medal of Arts in 1986, and the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award in 1991. In 1980, the U.S. Treasury Department coined a half-ounce gold commemorative medal with her likeness, and in 1984, she was the first recipient of the Eleanor Roosevelt Human Rights Award of New York City. In 2006, a commemorative U.S. postage stamp honored Marian Anderson as the 30th honoree of the Black Heritage Series. The Marian Anderson House was added to the National Register of Historic Places in 2011. She has been awarded honorary doctoral degrees from Howard University, Temple University, and Smith College. In 2001, the 1939 documentary film Marian Anderson, The Lincoln Memorial Concert, was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry 
by the Library of Congress. She also sings Sometimes I Feel Like a Motherless Child that is within that film registry at the Library of Congress. Marian Anderson, a contra-alto singer and the first African-American to sing at the New York Metropolitan Opera. We'll be back with Hans Charles talking about the film The 13th. You're listening to WERALP 96.7 FM. You are listening to WERALP 96.7 FM in Arlington. I'm your host, Andrea Cameron, and this is Enlighten Me. Well, it is a pleasure to bring on the program Kevin Alexander Gray. He is a civil rights activist. He has been working in the field and on the ground for many years in South Carolina. And I am so happy to have him join me. Kevin, thank you so much for joining Enlighten Me. Okie dokie. (laughs) (laughs) That's the best I got right now (laughs) on a hump day. Well, you know, it's so funny because, you know, uh, there are so many things, uh, you know, as we near the end of uh, Black History Month, there's so many things that that people want to talk about and have talked about. But, uh, you know, Donald Trump went to uh, the National Museum of African-American History uh, and a lot of people are voicing their um, concerns and and uh, their complaints regarding it. Well, listen, if it's a choice between Donald Trump and Mike Pence, I'm going to stay on the crazy train. I have to tell you that. Mm. I, I think that Pence is probably more dangerous uh, than Trump because he's such an ideologue. And, you know, Trump Trump is Trump. Is Trump. Trump, wants to, Trump is a celebrity. Mm-hmm. And if you look at his history, he's someone who has always sought people's acceptance. No question he's a narcissist. And no question... Uh, he has a problem. Uh, you know, I don't want to say he just has a problem with racism because I define racism and white supremacy from a power perspective and a okay. systemic perspective and an institutional perspective. Okay. And and But his basic bigotry and stereotyping of people is always on display, even with people that he considers his friends. The stereotyping just seems to come through when he relates to Ben Carson, when he talks about um, Al, uh, Alveda King, when he talks about anybody black. Right. It's all. It's always from a stereotypical prism, and uh, even, you know when he talks about black issues, Chicago, he'll throw up Chicago as his canard for black people, and you know the the idea that Chicago equals violent black people, mm-hmm. and, and so, and of course that was his response to. Uh, 
to John Lewis, why don't you do something about your crime-ridden neighborhood? So he has a lens uh, that he views black people that traditional, stereotypical, um, bigoted, white American. And then if you go back and look at his history, the history of his father, the lawsuits that were filed against uh, the, the, his companies, especially uh, in rentals, renting to black people in New York City, well, it's not it's, it's obvious what Donald Trump is. But when you look at how he responded to sitting down with Obama, you know, he's he hasn't said really a negative word about Obama since he met Obama. Okay. So part of it is him wanting to be accepted by people. So he, so you feel like he hasn't said a negative word about um, former President Barack Obama, even though he was one of the the uh, main people that that were, uh, you know, well, no, feeling he's this. Uh, he's a birther, and he played. Listen, he played the white supremacist card all the way to the White House. Okay, no question. So you don't that, think that you know, that's genuine, though? I mean, he's a politician, and um, and, and as I said, if you go back and look at his history and his father's history. Well, you know, they, they, you know, it was alleged that his father was arrested in a Klan rally. And, and so, and he, he's been raised an elitist. And he's been raised to believe that, um, that, that black people are violent and the, the criminal. I mean, that's in his, in his heart of hearts, that's what he believes. Although he still seeks to be accepted by people that as a celebrity, as, as someone who is a household name, for most Americans, a household name before he ran for president. And and um, the birtherism set that aside. I mean, people have, before um, he ran for president, I think that people just basically wrote him off as a flighty a flighty um, celebrity. Now, no question, with, with Steve Bannon and that cast of characters that he has with him that supported him, uh, uh, Sessions, Jeff, Jefferson Beauregard Sessions, mm-hmm. And um, and before Flynn was was uh, let go, Flynn, uh, uh, the the, uh, the Tillerson, I mean he has a he has a he has a white male supremacist uh, manifest destiny American exceptionalism, um, classist civilizations, uh, Islamophobic racist um, group of people around him. That's mm-hmm. what he is. But but then again, everything that Donald Trump is pushing through as far as policy, policies are concerned, well, they're the policies of the Republican Party. And in some regard, if you look at Betsy DeVos and her her appointment as Secretary of Education and her support of charter schools, well, Barack Obama supported charter schools. Rahm Emanuel supported charter schools. No one's made the connection between Rahm Emanuel, charter schools, and the breakdown of, of community in Chicago that's leading to a lot of the violence in Chicago. Okay, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to derail the conversation, I, but I do want to, to just make this point. I don't want you to just put it off on. I don't want you to just put American racism off on Donald Trump because American racism is American racism. Sure, no, no, I'm just speaking to the, the to the point of the the charter schools and public schools. It, but Barack Obama did uh, support public schools and he did support um, initiatives within public schools. And what he wasn't just for charter schools and private schools the where people are claiming Betsy DeVos look, is... Look, 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 look. I, I'm from the South. I'm 60 years old. My sister and I desegregated the schools in our county sure. in Spartanburg in 1969. And for since the period of desegregation, 
white folks, for the most part, through private academies, through vouchers, through charter schools, have tried to move their kids away from our kids. And no no black- question. No and, question. And, and Barack Obama and, and the people that support the Wall Street privatization school scheme, like Rahm Emanuel is doing in Chicago, well, you know what? You don't let them off the hook for that. But but you can't uh, you can't deny that uh, Barack President Obama did support public schools though. I mean that's that's well, just I mean, fact. Look look look. look. The, I, first of all, public schools are funded by state money for the most part. Okay. Okay. But the initiative that came out of D.C. from Barack Obama in advancing public schools and the charter school system and 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 getting black folk to buy into it well that happened under that happened under Barack Obama it's just like uh, t- talking about Donald Trump is about to deport 11 million people, maybe, unless we put up a fight. Well, Barack Obama deported a whole bunch of people. That's why we call him the deporter-in-chief. If you want to talk about executive power, it's not just about Trump and Obama. It's about the expansion of executive power, probably from World War II till this day, from Korea being a police action, from from uh, Vietnam being a police action to every war in between being something that a president did and Congress signed off on it afterwards, to having an assassination program, which most of us fought against in the 60s and 70s, and passing that on to somebody like Donald Trump. It's about the expansion of executive power. Now, when getting back to Donald, the Donald and the Black History Museum, I hope he goes back over and over and over again and learns something. Mm-hmm. I'm against everything... That 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 Donald Trump stands for, but I'm against this idea of of advancing white supremacy and empire and and and, a, and racist institutions, regardless of who's in office. Understood. Understood. You previously worked on uh, Jesse Jackson's campaign. You worked for uh, the president. Tom Harkin. Yeah, Tom Harkin. Uh, and you're you're currently uh, organizing the Harriet Tubman Freedom House Project. Tell us a little bit about what is going on with that and, and what uh, drew you to that project. Well, I've done that project for probably 20 years or so. It's an ad hoc group that we do it, that we have here in South Carolina that takes on specific types of issues. We took on the flag um, along with the ACLU. Mm-hmm. I, we were wanting to file suit against the state, claiming that the flag represented uh, represented um, uh, compelled expression. And of course, our group uh, did the protest on the flag, burnt the flag, uh, so, a Confederate flag sewn to the to a Nazi flag on Confederate Memorial Day. I believe it was in 2000 to make a stand against that flag when we were flying it up on the state house. Now um, we're working more on economic development and trying to work in those areas, uh, especially here in Columbia, around the historically black colleges and the, and the neighborhoods, the uh, traditional black neighborhoods in Columbia, mm-hmm. to force economic development into our, into our area. Yeah. You know, as my, as, look, I'm not a partisan. I'm not a Democrat. I've worked Democratic Party campaigns, but I didn't vote for Clinton, sure. and I didn't vote for Obama. Understood. I voted, I voted independent since Mike Dukakis decided to give Jesse... The, the dark side, of the, the, the lower part of his body, the kiss. And I haven't supported a national Democrat since in a general election. I've supported a lot in, in primary elections. I supported Sharpton for a bit. I supported Carol Mosley Braun. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Ron Daniels ran as a, uh, as a socialist, I supported him. But, as far, but you know, I, in, as for the last, I guess since 
Bill Clinton went off and executed Ricky Ray Rector, um, you know, I haven't been cozying up to Democrats. I, I tell people that Bill, uh, Bill Clinton put more black folk in jail than Ronald Reagan. And, uh, and, and that was his legacy. His legacy was the one-strike rule in public housing. Now, you want to make some connections between Bill Clinton and one-strike in public housing, which meant that if somebody living in, a, in public housing committed a crime, then the whole family got kicked out. The same way that if these ICE agents go into somebody's home looking for a so-called criminal and they are undocumented um, um, immigrants, in that home, then all of them can be deported. Well, that that was originated by Reagan, but but to your point, I I understand your point. Okay, well, but, we can but, go back to the Treaty of Hidalgo. You know, I, I keep reminding people that New Mexico is called isn't called New Mexico for nothing. That if their people understood their history, they'll under they would understand that New Mexico and Arizona and California and and a lot of the 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 uh, the, the uh, west the uh, southwest and west. Were, were Mexican territory, mm-hmm. and 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 uh, and then the migration of workers was something that was very fluid for years and years and years. Understood, understood. All right. So, but a lot of people talk about, um, you know, work in their own communities in order to create change. You have been working um, in South Carolina um, throughout. Um, and, and you've seen, you know, from where you've started to now, talk a little bit about the change that you've seen in working uh, within your own community. Well, you know, as I, I've worked in South Carolina and throughout the South with the Southern Rainbow Education Project with Gwen Patton and Ann Braden and Jack O'Dell. Jack O'Dell was, was Dr. King's first first. Um, keeper of records and names. He came from the uh, the Maritime Workers Union and folk like James Orange and, and Fred Shuttlesworth. So, you know, when I started out, my goal was I wanted to work with all the people that Dr. King worked with. Mm-hmm. That was my basic goal. Mm-hmm. And, 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 of course, in organizing Jesse's campaign, it wasn't just organizing Jesse's campaign in South Carolina, although this was the state that he won first and won big, and it helped us win Super Tuesday. And, and so, you know, I started out when blacks were getting into elected office, blacks were getting into schools, neighborhoods, jobs, whatever, for the very first time. On a lot of the elections, you know, the people were coming directly from the communities. Um, The money and the support was coming directly from the communities. It wasn't like it is now where, where a black politician ain't no different than a white politician when it comes to campaign money and where you get it and who you answer to. And there, and, most days, politicians are uh, are not as reachable as they were when we were coming up. That's mm-hmm. the biggest thing that I that I've noticed. And as I said, I'm very critical of of both parties. Yes. But when you talk about what is going on in the in the cities, in the, uh, where where there's very little economic development and a whole lot of gentrification, well, a lot of those cities are are led by Democratic politicians. Columbia is a city that's almost 50% black with a majority city council, but the development comes to the edge of the black community and uh, and stops until gentrification sets in and they and uh, and and higher income people, mostly white, move in, and, mm-hmm. and that's the thing that we're fighting right now. We're we're doing more fighting on the local level with with getting black elected officials to be responsive and responsible. 
to the people that elect them and not the developers and the big money people and the party. Your loyalty, mm-hmm. my problem with Reverend Jackson and the Rainbow Coalition and where I think we failed, we came out of a civil rights movement and we, we put our power, all our eggs, in the Democratic Party basket. Mm. And that and that has hurt us a lot. Mm-hmm. I, I think that the, the future of American politics which I talk, which is why I vote third party, and why I've filed lawsuits in the state to protect the rights of third parties through the Voting Rights Act, which is now pretty much dead and gone, and 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 what's left of it won't be supported by Jeff Sessions. But you know, we're trying. It's a it, it is an opportune time to try to put things back together and give folks some context because the context of our movement isn't about what Democrat we elect. Yeah. Kevin Alexander, great here with me today, civil rights activist, icon. Uh, you have a piece recently up, and this is Malcolm X uh, in his speech to SNCC workers in Selma, Alabama on February 4th, 1965. I'm going to play a little piece of that, but it speaks to what you're talking about regarding integration and how uh, African Americans uh, integrated within the movement. Just take a listen to uh, a little bit of, of the speech uh, that Malcolm X gave in Selma, Alabama. Same clique that put Kennedy in power joined the march on Washington. It's just like when you got some coffee that's too black, which means it's too strong. What you do, you integrate it with cream. You make it weak. If you pour uh, too much cream in, you won't even know you ever had coffee. It used to be hot, it becomes cool. It used to be strong, it becomes weak. It used to wake you up, now it'll put you to sleep. This is what they did with the March on Washington. They joined it. They didn't integrate it, they infiltrated it. They joined it, became a part of it, took it over. And as they took it over, it lost its militancy. They ceased to be angry. They ceased to be hot. They ceased to be uncompromising. Why, it even ceased to be a march. It became a picnic, a circus. Nothing but a circus with clowns and all. You had one right here in Detroit. I saw it on television with clowns leading it, white clowns and black clowns. I know you don't like what I'm saying, but I'm going to tell you anyway, because I can prove what I'm saying. If you think I'm telling you wrong, you bring me Martin Luther King and A. Philip Randolph and James Farmer and those other three and see if they'll deny it over the microphone. No, it was a sellout. It was a takeover. When James Baldwin came in from Paris, they wouldn't let him talk because they couldn't make him go by the script. Bert Lancaster wrote the speech that Baldwin was supposed to make. They wouldn't let Baldwin get up there because they know Baldwin liable to say anything. (laughs) They controlled it so tight, they told those Negroes what time to hit town. How to come, where to stop, what sign to carry, what song to sing, what
what speech they could make and what speech they couldn't make. And then told them to get out of town by sundown. That was uh, a speech that uh, Malcolm X gave to SNCC workers. That was one of the, the people that were speaking in Selma, Alabama on uh, February 4th, 1965. The piece that you wrote, uh, Kevin, Malcolm X, the House Negro versus the Field Negro. Tell me a little bit about um, what you meant with that piece and, and what you mean regarding integration versus infiltration. Well, you know, I was aiming that quote or that comment or that jibe at the folk that were standing behind Donald Trump. Now, I, I'm a Malcolm man, <laughs> and Malcolm, and Mal, but Malcolm changed a whole lot uh, at the time of his death. And that speech that he gave um, around the time of uh, the Selma movement was right around the time I think he was getting ready to leave um, leave the Nation of Islam. Okay. But but Malcolm certainly changed a whole lot and em- and embraced King and talked about working with people. And, you know, I I know a lot of people that were involved in the Selma movement. I know a lot of people in Marion. Um, you know, uh, I knew, uh, uh, I knew um, golly, I'm thinking that some names just escaped me. I just got through talking well, to Well, I mean, even in, even in James Baldwin uh, in the film, I Am Not Your Negro, <clears throat> um, which James, uh, you know, James Baldwin was featured throughout the movie. I mean, he even talks about the fact that uh, Malcolm X um, later on uh, during his life, uh, you know, was more like Martin and Martin was more like Malcolm. And they they, they both. Right. Right. I mean, you know, I, had, I they became they both became more pragmatic mm-hmm. about their politics, but they still had a context, a contextual view of, of black politics in America being human rights politics and tying those politics to a worldwide movement against white supremacy and making the connections across the diaspora and making the connections across culture, especially with people of color that were dealing with white supremacy and racism and and, and what it meant. I mean, most people don't even know how involved Dr. King was in the anti-apartheid movement, even in the 60s, and and Malcolm. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, and, and I did a... Back when we had the, um, the when they, we had the commemoration of the Civil War down here in South Carolina, which of course the first shots were fired out of Fort Sumter, we did a reading, a marathon reading of Uncle Tom's Cabin, and and that might be a problem. One of the problems I have with Malcolm, I mean Malcolm was a learned, a self-taught learned man, but when you go back and read the history of, when you go back and read Uncle Tom's Cabin, you'll realize that calling anybody an Uncle Tom is an insult to Uncle Tom because Uncle Tom stayed on the plantation, didn't tell Simon Legree how the the other slaves had had escaped, and was beat by Quimbo and Sambo to death. Simon Legree stayed on the plantation so that the other enslaved Africans wouldn't come up thinking that Simon Legree was all there was. Uncle Tom was a was a preacher now I have some problem with that but 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 the 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 uh in, insult that people hurl at each other um when their you my handkerchief head might be more appropriate than uncle tom mm-hmm. but but I was referring to those people standing behind maybe Lon, excluding Lonnie Bunch because he was doing his job <laughs> but but the people that were standing behind Donald Trump and all that nonsense that he was spewing 
um, at uh, Ben Carson and, and and Tim Scott, who is my senator. Well, they were they were, they were acting like House Negroes. Mm-hmm. And they're just so happy to be in the House that they'll stand behind the devil. Uh, Kevin Alexander Gray here with a civil rights uh, icon and activist, and he's been working in South Carolina for uh, years, was with uh, the Rainbow Push Coalition and was also uh, the presidential campaign uh, manager for Senator Tom Harkin. Kevin, when people talk about, um, you know, the African-Americans that are in the current administration, a lot of people are divided. African-Americans are divided on this issue. Some say that there should be somebody within the administration in order to, um, you know, push forward initiatives that African-Americans uh, want to see. Others say there is no way, you know, in order to work within this current administration and African-Americans shouldn't even negotiate. What do you say to I think we always make demands, but you know, if it's about the representation, the, the no, because they're not representation. It's about those faces, those bodies. Well, I don't. I don't think it's necessarily about the bodies. I think it's nece- it, it, people are arguing. You know, we need somebody within the administration in order to fight for African American rights, or if, somebody if, if, there if, in if, order if to. The, if the administration is operating under the assumption and asking people to serve under the assumption that any Negro will do, then no, you don't support that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what basically what Donald Trump has. He's got what he's got because with him, any Negro will do. Ben tokens. Carson, yeah, right. I mean, this is, they are, I'm sorry, they are the definition of powerless tokens. And, and what, is, what is Ben Carson going to do at HUD? I mean, even Armstrong Williams, his closest friend and advisor, came out with a bit of honesty saying, what does Ben Carson know about running a federal agency? What mm. does he know about running HUD? Yeah. And, and no one needs any kind of fake Christianity, uh, which is what Ben Carson likes to put out. That ain't what people need. People need housing, decent, ho- safe housing, uh, and, a, and secure neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And if you're not going to be an advocate for that, then you don't need a job. Omarosa, uh, uh, cele- now, no question, anybody... And everybody ought to, you know, the government is supposed to be a public, a public endeavor. And and I believe in citizen politicians, you know, where you serve your community. I mean, but 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 not become not to where it becomes a, your profession and your way of life and your way of earning living, where you go into government to do good, as they say, and you end up doing financially well. Yeah, I, I you know, that's. That's not that shouldn't be the nature of government and, and participation in government. And that's what we have now. But, you know, if you look at who Trump has around him, well, there are people who have a strange connection to the community. And usually it's, it's an entrepreneurial, opportunistic connection to the community as opposed to working in the community. And then you've got somebody like so said, Tim Scott uh, standing up for Betsy DeVos. Uh, if Betsy DeVos were to take her resume to any school district in America and lay it on the table and say, I want a job, they tell her to hit the bricks because <laughs> she's not qualified. She's simply not qualified. Yep. Kevin Alexander Gray, a civil rights activist, has joined me today to talk about the history of the civil rights struggle as well as the current administration's outreach toward African Americans. Kevin, thank you so much for joining me today. Really appreciate your insight. Well, I know sometimes I come back. I'm, I'm, I'm not what you what you're going to get regularly. Oh, you know what? It, 
Look, you know, I, but, but I think that this this viewpoint is always um, something that I, I mean, within the African American community. Look, you've got all sorts of viewpoints. You know, you've got people who uh, are strongholds in the Democratic Party and people who are saying, no, we we need to do something different. So I always appreciate the conversation. And if the Democratic Party does something different, then I might be with it. But, you know, one of the – and I'm, on this one, I know you got to go. I mean, go back and do a little research on Lonnie Guineer and cumulative voting and, and third parties. Bill Clinton didn't kick Lonnie Guineer to the curve because, because she was, quote-unquote, against democracy. Mm-hmm. He kicked her to the curve because she was talking about advancing democracy, and that's not what the two parties want to see. And, and so – but, and I'll encourage you, i got two books out right now. One is Waiting for Lightning to Strike, which is a book I wrote years ago, um, which one of the pieces in it is called The Fundamentals of Black Politics. But it's a good piece to, to, as a primer or context for movement politics and progressive politics. And then the book I edited with Jeffrey St. Clair and Joanne V. Piepsky. Yes, uh, Killing Ken Trayvon. yes. I think that, you know, that, they're using it in a lot of schools, and if you want to look at the idea of racial profiling and the war against black males and 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 this whole idea of stand your ground, the gun laws, due process, which is the issue for all of us. I mean, fundamentally, our fight is about due process, equal protection, equal treatment, and economic development, be it through conservative reparations, known as affirmative action, or reparations, what is the modern-day equivalent of 40 acres and a mule. That, Those are the things we got to talk about. That is the word. Kevin, thank you so much for joining me. Kevin Alexander, great civil rights activist. He has been entrenched in the struggle and is currently still entrenched in South Carolina. Thank you so much, Kevin, for joining me today. Thank you. All right. Up next, I am so excited. My surprise guest, Hans Charles, uh, will talk about the 13th. He will talk about what's going on and how, what he's doing for this weekend and uh, as well as black cinematographers uh, and their shine this uh, Oscars. All right. This is Enlighten Me. I'm your host, Andrea Cambron. You're listening to WERALP 96.7 FM. You are listening to WERALP 96.7 FM. This is Enlighten Me. I'm your host, Andrea Cambron. And joining me today, the cinematographer for the 13th, Ava DuVernay's documentary on mass incarceration, Hans Charles. Thank you so much for joining me, Hans. Hey, how are you? Good, 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 good. All right, so the 13th (laughs) is up for an Oscar. Are you excited? Um, I am. I mean, I think it's just a great opportunity for people to kind of shed light on mass incarceration. I think, you know, I've been, you know, been traveling the country and it just seems that people in all walks of life have been engaging in this discussion. And I think that's an amazing thing. And that's that's going to be the legacy of that film. So what, you know, tell me a little bit about um, what's going on as far as, you know, because I feel like, um, Especially with this Oscars, you know, last time, last year, uh, the Oscars So White uh, trended on Twitter. But this year, there's been an influx in um, African-American films, African-American cinematographers, African-American work that has been featured uh, this time around. Tell me a little bit about how you're feeling um, with that and, you know, what's going on with uh, this new work. I mean, you this documentary category that you are in. Um, there are multiple films by African Americans yeah. um, in the document best documentary category. I mean, yeah. 
that's pretty amazing. Yeah, Raul Peck, who you know, you, you and I, when we were going to school together, Raul would 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 you know drop by Howard and and drop by Holly Greenman's class. Mm-hmm. And, um, for me, it was just you know just felt amazingly special to you know for him to see me as a student and then to see the work when it premiered at the New York Film Festival, where his film "I Am Not Your Negro" also premiered. Yeah, stateside. Um, you know, I was really proud. He was like, "Wow, I'm really proud of your work. I'm really proud of you know you coming along." So, I mean, for for me, that that film is a piece of amazing, groundbreaking cinema. Uh, and yeah, the, I mean, the the the, the category is chock full of you know really great, amazing films. And for black people in general, this year it's it's definitely been a bit of a, a you know a bellwether. I mean, just great things have happened. But you you also know that. Hollywood does things in waves. So, yeah, you're right. You know, in three or four years, if if it's a bit of a desert in terms of nominations, you know, just just remember that I warned you that that, that these <laughs> things come in waves. Yeah, I mean they do. That's just the reality, you know. So it's like get in the work while you can. No, you're right. There might you know feast or famine uh, with the industry. It doesn't it's just you know it's not a true true meritocracy. It's you know it's like. Which is why probably this year is so amazing because it's like, in order to even get recognized, you probably have to be the best. No, really. <laughs> For them to recognize that maybe you're good. <laughs> but, but, you know, so the speaking of, speaking of Howard University and the fact that we, we both, you know, went to film school there. And speaking on that point, uh, Bradford Young, who was just yeah. featured in Variety, spoke on that, spoke on the fact that, you know, th- there is a sense of like, okay, this is cool that you're getting, um, you know, uh, recognized for this work. But, you know, th- this is kind of sad that there's so many cinematographers, so many directors, so many films, so many bodies of work that don't get recognized but are quality pieces. Yeah, I mean, Bradford Young is nominated for Best Cinematography and in, in Arrival went to Howard University. I think you and I met in his cinematography class. Um, so, you know, it's great that you say that. But I, the thing that I'm even more passionate about, not just about recognizing, is I'm passionate about the work, what we call below the line, which is the, essentially the workers on a film set, mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 the directors, yep. the executive producers, the actors. You know, they're able to profit in the intellectual property of the actual film. So mm-hmm. if the film does well overseas, they get a piece of that money. If it does well in streaming, it does. they get a piece of that money. But the rest of us who really just get a paycheck for just the film being shot, I'm passionate about diversifying behind the camera. Mm. And I think a lot of people are talking about diverse diversity, but that's it's in the crews. I'm, you know, I'm going to be quite honest with you, um, because there are people who are making an amazing uh they're they're taking care of their families because they work in the film industry. Yeah, and 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 the level of lifestyle they're able to have, they probably wouldn't have, you know, to the degree that they're working, they wouldn't have that in any other industry. Yep. And I think that, um, like even the sports industry and CAA, a, a lot of us are are not able to spread our good fortune in terms of the actors and directors more within within that space you know so you mm. see a lot of films that are quote-unquote black films that are you know that the 90 percent of the crew is white you know mm-hmm. and i think to me that's the thing that i'm passionate about and, and as a cinematographer that's what at least on the stuff that i am going to do that i i, I want to have really diverse films um, not in terms of what's in front of the camera but and not only for my position but 
all positions because I think that the energy that the people who are on your set bring to that set really dictates um, the way that film is received. So, um, so for me, and, and I think that's a, a t- an issue that if you can get past that issue, then the the Oscar so white stuff it doesn't have the same sting because you had no, you know at least behind the scenes black people are still working. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, so for for me, you know, people of color really don't get an opportunity to work in the film business, and people will say things like, "Well, you're not the best," and 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 it's kind of a, a silly thing to say because what's ironic about the film industry is if I you know if I get a big budget movie. We're working five months, let's say, you know, Star Wars is going to shoot for like a year. There's, I could start that year and not really know what I'm doing. But by the end of that year, I'm going to be an expert because we're, <laughs> we're doing this thing five days a week, 12 to 18 hours a day. Yeah. You know, for four months, you're going to get good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Know, even if you don't want to get good, you're just going to get good. So yeah. When you hear people say, well, those aren't the best. That's that's it's a very false thing to say because people get good because they get the opportunity yeah right and and the experience and the time you get the experience and the time and if you give people the opportunity they become the expert you know all those people who became experts on some of these films they became because somebody gave them a shot yeah to get okay you know what you haven't done this before but i'm going to give you a shot because i think you can do it yeah you know so i think that's the next thing because that really actually affects our community look I love the fact that, you know, somebody like Viola Davis or Kavia Spencer, that these people get Oscars. But what really changes our community as a whole is what Spike Lee did, which was make sure that black people also, and not just black people, women, uh, all kinds of minorities mm-hmm. got to participate in making movies. The mil- yeah. And I don't we, we are communities. We- we are low on time, Hans, but I do, and I hate that I always do this to you, but I do want to uh, pre, you know, talk about the the current film that you're working on that that you're currently looking for, uh, you know, crowdfunding on. Yeah, so our, our film, One Angry Black Man, is uh, going to be written and directed by my creative partner, Menelik Lumumba, mm-hmm. and I'm going to be the cinematographer and executive producer. And it's about a a uh, a class, an, an Afri- African-American studies class, and there's one black male in the class, and he's kind of catching flack from all the participants in the class because they, they start wrestling with the history of black people in this country and modern-day issues. And it's a very interesting, compelling, dramatic script, and we're super excited um, to, to, to get busy with our crowd uh, uh, sourcing campaign. We're going to launch it right after the Oscars and uh, look for it. You, you'll see it on either my Facebook page, Manolik Mumba's Facebook page, our uh, podcast Facebook page, uh, Back of the Theater podcast. So yeah, I'm super excited about that. Thank you for reminding me about that. Yes. So uh, and I and I know that you know at one point I'm actually going to have you on for the entire hour because we always yeah. do this, <laughs> where it's always like five minutes left in the show, and uh, so I might have you back on after after the Oscars to uh, do I, a, a more in depth. Hans Charles, the cinematographer for the 13th. I'm so excited for you. Thank so you. happy Thank for you. So uh, and it. really, really proud. Uh, has joined us on the program today on Enlighten Me. All right. Well, that's it, guys. That's all the show that I have for you today. Join me next week. We will be previewing Women's History Month. Yay! So, uh, so you know, join me, join me next month. This is Enlighten Me on WERALP 96.7 FM. 
Funding for WERA is provided by Rust Insurance Agency, LLC, a locally owned independent insurance agency since 1889. For more information, visit rustinsurance.com.